This is Freaky Trigger and the Lollards of Pop. Um, oh, it's very nearly our fourth anniversary. Uh, we haven't actually found out exactly when that is, and that may be nonsense, but I think it's true. Um, uh, I'd like to welcome tonight Alastair McLean, Cicely Noel-Smith, and Lana Gilligan. I'm Mark Sinker. Um, next to me is Hazel Robinson, who may or may not suddenly grab the mic from me in order to correct me or whoever else is talking nonsense. <laughs> Um, as it's sort of kind of an anniversary, uh, <coughs> it's quite interesting that, um, well, it's interesting to reveal that uh, the way we used to structure the programmes when we started is that we had a secret word, which we never told anyone, <laughs> in order to generate interesting conversation with without anyone knowing why we were talking about what we were talking about. Um, and... Uh, for a while, that's what I'm going to be doing tonight as well. Um, the the topic we're discussing is something which unites um, cookery. Pretty much everything. everything. Well, it unites absolutely everything ever, which <laughs> yes. is obviously uh, uh, relevant to my interests, which are wider than that. Um, but yes, cookery, poetry, music, and anything else that anyone grabs the microphone to discuss. Not my neck again. <laughs> <laughs> which will be perfect. Um, so uh, perhaps to um, get us in the mood, we're going to start with um, a song <laughs> by, <laughs> in order to uh, test the knob twiddling, we're going to start with a song by New Order. Thank you. 
would possibly leave you believing that the secret word is goat um it might be a sheep it could be a sheep and there's a there's a really funny one which is a really squeaky high one right <laughs> at the end which is key to the whole song in my opinion <coughs> um so uh to introduce the first uh aspect of, of the topic um i'm uh yeah um <laughs> <laughs> We're really exploring every dimension of it at the moment. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm just going to sort of go back to thinking about something which struck me when I used to watch um, cookery on television, and Jamie Oliver particularly. Um, this is probably six or seven years ago when he was first becoming, maybe a bit longer than that actually, he was becoming uh, a name. He was first on television. And um, I do a lot of work reading and writing with the television on. And I didn't really like him very much. I found him a bit kind of glib and I found his, his, the sound of his voice annoyed me. So I would, I would work with the sound pretty close to Dan. But it was still cookery, so obviously I still had it on. And I suddenly realised that I was actually watching his hands with I, I was kind of mesmerized I couldn't work anymore because I was mesmerized by watching the way his hands moved and it suddenly struck me that in some weird way I was uh, accepting that he was a cook not based on the way he talked about it on on his blarney as it were but just watching the way his hands moved and the way he chopped just just the camera used to keep on it. It doesn't do that with all cooks, which I think is quite interesting. Um, telling. Sorry? Telling. Well, maybe. probably telling, yes. Um, but that, whatever his flaws as a television <laughs> character, 
um, he does his hands, his body knows what what it's doing, and uh, so that's where I I want to start. Um, Mana. I um, I was thinking about the proper way to chop an onion. Um, which Jamie Oliver would have done a lot of chopping onions on his program. And that really depends on what you're going to do with the onion. If you want it caramelised, soft and gloopy, if you're planning to cook it for a couple of hours, you need to cut it pole to pole. That's starting at the root, cutting down through the onion to the stalk, or the other way around. So you get little wedges, little moon shapes of onion. If you're putting it in a salad, you really, really want to slice the other way, crossways. And there's proper scientific reason for this. Um, and that's that the <laughs> bless you. That's the Obviously, onions chopped the wrong way, make you sneeze. <laughs> yes, that's right. There are ways to ensure that onions don't make you sneeze on air, such as not having them in the studio, but for some reason that hasn't worked. It's because we need to turn the tears on. Yeah. Um, the way that the cells of an onion is structured means that when you cut them crossways, you rupture loads and loads of cells, um, letting all that juicy onionness out and making the structure of your slice unstable. When you slice them pole to pole, you rupture very few of the cells, meaning that then all the tasty onionness stays inside, and the piece, the, your chunk of onion itself, is a more stable structure. So when you cook it for three or four hours, it doesn't turn into a piece of string. It's still a sort of solid, succulent piece of onion. If you're cutting it crossways and you're releasing, you're rupturing lots of cells, you're releasing lots of onion aroma. That's more likely to make you cry. I'm not sure about sneeze. <laughs> um, and also, if, if you're planning on having these onions raw and you cut across and you find that these onions are a bit feisty, nobody's going to kiss me if I'm eat these onions raw you've already let out a lot of their oniony aroma so a quick dip into some cold water will um, rinse that away and you can have raw onion salad without quite so much raw onion breath this is this is stuff that obviously you know you've been cutting onions for a long time so you now know a I lot really of like cutting onions <laughs> and you know a lot of the reasons why to do it this way in this context and that way in that context but when you're learning you don't want to be weighed down by lots of reasons you actually need to do the stuff yeah, before you, you have the reasons so uh, what I suppose is I mean f you're someone who is interested in why it works yeah the, si um, the science of cookery is the most fascinating bit of it but for a lot of people a lot of people just want their onion soup, <laughs> and so they're they're gonna um, they're going to cut to the bit which is most convenient to them because yeah. they're they're in a hurry and they and so there's lots of things there's lots of shortcuts which are offered, um, which uh, in the pressure of actually producing the meal for people to sort of more or less enjoy it and there's lots of pressures on when you're producing a meal which aren't just to do with how nice it tastes. When you say shortcut do you mean cut here, here, here and and you have a handily diced onion? Or do you mean nip into Marks and Spencer's <laughs> and buy one of their prepackaged <coughs> onion 
chopped well, onion that's, rings. That, I mean, that's even more that's of a... Sh- that's even... A bit too much of a shortcut. Or wasn't there a delivery service that would bring you the raw ingredients prepared for your meal <laughs> to your office? There's a very di- expensive delivery service which brings and, and you Jamie you Oliver. <laughs> and then you could take it home and you'd be able to cook up a... Um, meal in 20 minutes following instructions so you could say hey i've made home-cooked food i think that has only ever existed on adverts i don't think that's a real thing at all there is also quite a good service called tesco stir fry mix that (laughs) does a similar thing yeah but and tesco's will bring it to your home they do deliver they need there needs to be people cooking it in your house that's what they have to deliver the delivery service includes the the chefs the sous chefs the waiters there is there the concept called the takeaway as well. Yes. <laughs> which, you know. Well, there's obviously all of these the layers of, of convenience which are shortcuts through certain elements. But I, I mean, I take it that one of the aspects of learning to cook it is your, the, the pleasure of the hinterland, which you kind of get to by these apparently slightly dreary or repetitive aspects i once worked in a pub um where every saturday morning the pub would be open somebody would be behind me in the kitchen putting lunches together it was my job to peel three sacks of potatoes a sack of carrots and usually a sack of swede and i would so so happily sit there from about 9 a.m till 2 p.m or whenever i'd gotten through my amazing washing peeling chopping task with hands that had frozen, because I'm scrubbing them in cold, cold water, in this happy, happy trance of chopping vegetables. Sis, you kind of let leant forward then in order to say something. I was just thinking about how much of it is ritual and how much is necessary, because uh, doing really, really like I have, you know, for me the pan has to be hot before you put the oil in. The oil has to be hot before you put anything in it. Like I have a kind of set of things, and I never know whether I'm doing it because it's actually the right way to do it because that actually makes something better or whether I just do it that way because that's the kind of the 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 sequence that I've learned to do things in and I think you can if it's a sequence you've learned to do you can switch off the fore bit of your brain yeah and do it and it's calming and and Mm. pleasurable yeah that it's that it's a process which puts you in the zone yeah and and also, I would imagine, um, lets the other bits of your brain, which aren't necessarily involved in this, kind of roam free either to uh, imagine all kinds of things which have nothing to do with what you're doing or to explore ideas which are to do with what you're doing, which is, you know, what you could be, what you could be making next time or just coming towards uh, imagining it's it sort of it sets free one side of your brain, routine work, to roam around thinking, I could be doing this, I could be doing that, and that's something that it's it's quite often worth uh, training your brain to do. Mm. Oh, that was nice. That's nice. <laughs> I said something so wise or so silly that everyone Everybody just shuts up. At you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the other the other aspect. I mean, I'm talking about I. You know, I kick this off by talking about um, television cooking, and increasingly, television cooking has my view. Watching of it has veered towards the competitive dimension of it. 
uh, you know, I uh, what I'm trying to say in a oblique way is that I've been watching MasterChef and professional <laughs> MasterChef for the last however million years it's been on. And one of the things that I think I enjoy about professional MasterChef is the extent to which what people are being competitively tested on has stopped being actual practical skills because everyone involved has those you know beyond your imagination but is increasingly absurd skills of no use whatever to in in the context of actual eating they have this concept called fine dining which is nothing to do with eating at all but but do you think the reason why they're no longer testing for it is that everyone has it as standard or do you think the reason they're no longer testing for it is that it's not as glamorous it's extreme tv i think if you're you know if it's like i have combined the tuna the lime the <laughs> the foie gras to produce a seared masterpiece is is much more sellable it's much more bright and kind of engaging rather than I am actually incapable of chopping parsley the way parsley is well, supposed to be chopped. I, I think it, here is the tenth, you know, season of MasterChef, and again we're going to watch people chop vegetables. <laughs> yeah, you need I, to have I something different a, every I year, think, I reckon. Yeah. I, and I think extreme TV is actually quite a good way because this is the, it's more like punked every year, isn't it? <laughs> that actually they're saying that we want to test whether you can caramelize the air rather mm. than rather than something to do with something that you actually would want to make in your own kitchen it's something you would only make in a kitchen which is so expensive that only lunatics actually pay to eat there and what they eat is just weird nonsense weird nonsense is lovely (laughs) (laughs) but cheap weird nonsense is better than not weird nonsense that none of us can afford by definition i'm not entirely (laughs) sure that logic follows but and some of us spend all our money eating bad, um, weird nonsense, <laughs> and cooking weird nonsense. I really want one of those food, those, um, the, the science of food packs that you could now get, which are things you could buy separately. But it's the kind of like, here is your egg, our egg, our, here is your hypodermic syringe. Here is um, your, I sort of have most of that at home. <laughs> Mother, can I come round and play? Yes. <laughs> Yay! Science kit. I've got, I don't. I haven't actually bought the kit because it's so much more expensive. It's insane. It's like it's like sixty pounds for a couple of grams of powder. Alistair, do you? C- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Just I do. Th- yeah, yeah. Please jump in and well, stop. The this. thing that strikes me about MasterChef, and I don't know if this is a recent thing because I've only I, I watched it a long time ago, then I threw away my TV, and I'm I've been watching it on iPlayer recently again. Is when John Tarot gives the uh, masterclass kind of of how to cook a certain dish and he explains it to Greg Wallace and Greg Wallace looks as if he's never heard of an omelette before John Tarot is making it and he says so now you put some cream in with the eggs Greg Wallace leans forward makes a puzzled expression with his eyebrows and nods as if he said something really profound and it strikes me as so strange so phony it's like Greg Wallace is listening to John Tarot as if John Tarot you know like reading something from um, Shakespeare but he's he's actually talking about how to make an omelette and uh, this for me is MasterChef really in a in a nutshell because it's really stopped me wanting to cook. It just makes every time I cook, I just think John Trode's going to hate this. <laughs> this dish is just you know, three out of ten. Greg would make a face, you know, and it really takes the joy out of it for me. That kind of and I suppose to go to go to the what we're actually talking about that that insistence on technique and uh, perfection. It really spoils it, you know. 
as far as I'm concerned. One of the seasons of Celebrity MasterChef, though, sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> one of the seasons of Celebrity MasterChef, the last one I saw, what had um, Andy, what's his name from BBC? And <laughs> Andy None Peters. Of us know this in Some our do. Great Andy Peters. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, Andy Peters. Uh, <laughs> it was really Andy Peters. Wow. And Gordon. Liz from <laughs> Atomic Kitten. And Liz from Atomic Kitten had never really cooked before, and she did it all wrong most of the time. Um, and she won because she was a woman in her 30s and uh, that's what always <laughs> happens um, but also um, she was much more successful than Andy Peters although he was creating things that in terms of technique what he was doing was exactly right um, and in terms of how it looked it was completely perfect but that only took him so far because he wasn't actually tasting it well that's a fantastically uh, efficient and professional segue into <laughs> what Sis uh, is interested in talking about and I guess the the sort of short version of that is is the question of how technique might stifle the life out of <coughs> or how we m you might get convinced that technique is stifling the life, life out of what you're doing and then after a while suddenly stop and go but without it what can I do? I've been thinking recently, um, I think quite a lot, actually, about the reform of tanker, uh, which is a thing not that many people who aren't me are all that <laughs> interested in. Um, but tanker are a form of Japanese poem. Um, they're 31 syllables long. The syllable structure is 57577. Um, so they're, they're like a haiku with an extra 14 syllables on the end. In fact, haiku were invented out of tanka um, and they've been being written they used to be called waka uh, and they've been being written in japan since well since earliest times because apparently the first ever waka was written by the god susano <laughs> ono mikoto um and it's uh how does it go <laughs> <laughs> it's something like um Four f eightfold clouds rise up in Izumo. A an eight foot an eightfold fence. I build an eightfold fence to enclose my bride. Oh, eightfold fence. <laughs> it's it's um. What? Okay. It's, there's a question here which demands being answered. Without yeah. What's an eightfold fence? It's a fence that is that has like eight, eight layers. Fold. I guess. Okay. Like eight ply, eight fold. Okay. So sort of yeah, very yeah, thick no, fence. It's a very thick fence. She's clearly a very precious <laughs> wife and very likely to run away if not enclosed. <laughs> yes. yes, pretty because much because of his bad poetry <laughs> <laughs> or the bad technique of his poetry. But anyway, I he's a god. He, his poetry <laughs> can't be bad. He he did some pretty bad things. He is he is the <laughs> rebel god. Um, so. Yeah, so obviously it has existed since earliest times, since the days of the gods, uh, and continues to be written. There was actually a, a, a sort of tanker boom in the 1980s, which was, I think it was the 1980s, mostly around this woman, Tawara Machi, who um, writes these very, very cute tanker about like going on dates and holding hands and eating salad. And they're all, you know, very likeable. Um, but th there's... Uh, between about 900 AD and 1900 AD, uh, tanker became a very, very fixed form. There was 
a specific vocabulary you were only allowed to use. There was a specific grammar that you were only allowed to use, which wasn't actually used in speech at all. Um, there were these kind of questions of technique. And after a while, Tanka was perceived more as being about proving you could master the technique and slightly less about actually doing anything poetic. So um, you'd have a poem which was a reference to another poem which had been written 400, 500 years earlier, and it was a, a poem around an idea that people had always been having, and people used poetry to kind of think through certain ideas and to r repeat... So the classic thing is something like there are classic images which suggest certain things and there are classic emotions and you would write various poems around that image or various poems around that emotion to kind of work out to, to, to write about what was that made it itself and that was what poetry was for um, so there, there are these very famous ones about loneliness shall I speak yes. Japanese on the radio yes um, <laughs> What so there for. there's the three, I can't remember <laughs> what they're called, but there are these three poems which are all about autumn evenings and loneliness. Um, <coughs> so there's the one by Jakuren, which goes, Sabishisa wa sono iro toshi mo nakari keri, makitatsu yama no aki no yungure, which is, loneliness has no colour. The mountain studded with pines on an autumn evening. And then Saigyo, the one which is next in the collection, is Kokoronaki Ninimo Awarewa Shirari Keri Shikitatsu Takeno Akino Yugure. I couldn't really read my handwriting there. But anyway, uh, which is even one who has a heart can recognize sadness. The lake where the snipe stand autumn evening. And then the one by um, Fujiwara no Sadaie, Sadaie, which is Miwataseba Hana mo Momiji mo Nakari Keri Ura no Tomoya no Akino Yungure, which is When I look across, I see no flowers, no autumn leaves, the thatched hut by the bay in the autumn evening. And they're all about the feeling of desolation and loneliness that you get when you look out on an autumn evening and there are no colours, there's no flower that you can fix your eye on. And even if you are supposed to be a priest and supposed to have no feelings, you're supposed to be kind of heartless and not care about the world, you still feel the loneliness. So they're all... It's all a way of using the same vocabulary and the same images to get closer to the ideal of a thing. Which is all very well and good, but they were all written in the 12th century, maybe the 13th century. And so by the time you get to the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, people... You, you kind of run out of words. I mean, Masao Kashiki, who is the person I wanted to talk about, actually said that when you think about it mathematically, there are only so many words that you can fit in a 31-syllable pattern. So at some point, we're going to run out of poems. <laughs> which, um, he's not wrong. And so he, but he still wanted to kind of try and revitalise the style to make it less about kind of less 
traditional, less pretty. He thought that kind of poetry was too feminine. Um, it was too self-indulgent. And so he was really intent on breaking from previous forms of technique and finding a new modern style of poetry while still staying within the 31-syllable boundary. Uh, so what he did, what his, his grand plan was, was to make Tanka a little bit more like haiku and more about impressionistic... Can you say impressionistic? I'm not sure. Realist. Um, the, the chasse style, which is description of what you see. So like snapshots. Yes, yeah. And so his idea was that you, you sort of... Because... Um, you, it has to be an image, and therefore it becomes much more autobiographical, because it has to be something that you've definitely seen. And he used to demand these things for the chasse style, like you had to go out and go for a walk. If you went out on this walk and then you saw a thing, and that brought poetry alive in your breast, and then you wrote a poem. Um, so his his uh, change to the technique was less to do with well, instead of thirty one syllables, let's make it thirty two. It was. Mm -hmm instead of sitting at your desk, go for a walk. Yeah, and instead of moping about how miserable you feel... <laughs> <laughs> Cheer up, chop an onion. Y you say that, but Shiki had tuberculosis for 10 years, and he, he named himself Shiki uh, because it's the Chinese way of staying kototogisu, which is um, uh, uh, the bird which is thought to cough blood. So essentially he woke up one day <laughs> coughing blood because he had tuberculosis and was like, my poetic name... Is going to be, so he was. He was a great. He was a massive great goth himself. Uh, but his thing was that to get away from kind of uh, another poet of the time, uh, Yosemite Tekkan describes it as poetry ruinous to the nation. So to get away from this kind of decadent, effete form of poetry. So the the stuff that's ruinous is the stuff that already exists. He it's was agreeing. He's agreeing. And he agrees. The, and yes, he's like, yeah. no, what we need is this thing which is based on real lived experience, except it's real lived ex experience, which is like, I saw a flower. It was a pretty flower in a, you know, by a field. And so what happens is he comes up against this massive problem, which is that he's living in a modernising nation, a modernising, industrialising nation um, and he has this very strong sense of what is kind of elegant in poetry uh, and it doesn't include most of the trappings of a modernised nation so when he's saying we need to do this, this new more, this, this new technique of poetry that is based on what you can see and what you can immediately feel and kind of subjective beauty uh, objective beauty he then says things like, oh, but you can't write poems about trains because trains are ugly. If you have to write a poem about a train, it should be a poem about some flowers that you saw by a train track. That's okay because that's, that's pretty enough. So even though he sort of tries to break away from the traditional techniques, what inevitably happens is he starts dialing it back almost immediately and saying, oh, but, oh, but we should, you know, stick within this very descriptive um, but only descriptive of the pretty things only ever beautiful um, and it, it, this is the way where he suddenly starts to fall behind while other poets at the same time like Ishikawa Takamaku my favourite 
the most emo of all the emo socialist poets, um, <laughs> go very very much further and start writing poems about people in trains spitting and wanting to cry and, you know, the, the really meaningful stuff of life. Well, spitting seems to me a good segue. <laughs> I, I really like the way everyone's just <laughs> delivering me these feedlines, like the pros we all are not paid to be. Um, Alistair, uh, as a, a working musician, mm-hmm. you, you consider yourself a professional musician, presumably. That's your job, that's your... That's what I do, yeah. 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 Um, that means that you are very much caught up in a world where there are arguments about the pros and cons of technique mm-hmm. and and I mean what you were talking about before uh, touched on that that the that uh, overlearned technique or too precious technique or too much uh, focus on technique is is more about stifling than it is about expression mm-hmm. and that um, in music especially there's a a tradition of uh, punching against that, which, mm. you know, in some of its aspects, is known as punk. Which is why I thought spitting was such a cool thing to. I get it now. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours late again. <laughs> um, so uh, yes. Well, um, I think the reason that I got invited on this show was because the the guy who invited me, Tim, uh, knew that I had. Um, I, opinions that went slightly against the the what we could call the punk orthodoxy you know that indie music has inherited that um too much technique was a stifling uh was stifling towards expression and um, it probably was true in 1975 1976 or whatever because you had all these session musicians who had been session musicians in the 60s and they'd been kind of trained not to stick out and to play generically and anonymously and suddenly they started to form their own bands and it really wasn't all that pretty, you know, in my opinion anyway, it wasn't all that pretty. Um, and, you know, I think that you probably know more about it than I do, Mark, but um, I think that punk was a uh, kick back against that, didn't it? It was like, let's make things a little bit more simple because they really don't need to be this fussy and overcomplicated and, uh, you know, return to first um, uh, principles or whatever. Um, and I just think that, that was all very well and good at the time, but what's happened since is that a lot of people don't have any technique and they're proud of not having any technique. And what gets overlooked is the fact that people with bad technique tend to sound equally all the same and tend to sound equally expressionless as people who are overtrained in the conservatory. So, um, you know, I guess that would be that, that's probably my point that, that I don't really know how useful that philosophy is moving on. Well, I, I mean, as someone, you know, that I was exactly the right age for this philosophy to be very exciting for me. And I think it was because I was at the age where I was kind of learning myself who I was and what I was. And it was exciting see, seeing people jumping up on stage and kind of learning in front of you. For some reason, this was much more, it felt much more inclusive. It's a... The the thing that I think is interesting is that it seems to me that music is the is the discipline in the sense that poetry and I really don't think cookery are where arguments about 
what is appropriate technique and what's valuable technique seem to be part of the point of why we come to music mm. that actually the the tensions and the arguments and the conflicts are part of the pleasure and part of the sort of educative or pedagogic point of music in a way which seems to me not the case in lots of other practical disciplines i mean certainly that's not you know i i would like it to be the case maybe with master chef but it kind of isn't really master chef doesn't have a punk dimension however much we would like it to and the punk <coughs> dimension there by what i what i mean by that is not um being proud of not being able to do something but being interested in being uncertain what it is you should be teaching yourself to do mm. you get up and you're suddenly presented with the you have to express yourself and you you have something to say but you don't know what it is yet and the the actual the dynamic is like there in front of you but you you know you're being paid to to appear so you have to do something the audience is also there in front of you yes and you've got to consider their feelings at times as well you know exactly but uh, and uh, i think that that's um there's a there's an upside and a downside to that because it, they may have come to see someone learning in front of them as i certainly was age sort of 16 or 17 or they may have come for something more um considered and precise and mm. kind of pre-established um so i mean i think i i think the the point that you're making that that too little technique and too much technique have um similar effects which are kind of leveling effects is actually quite an interesting one because mm -hmm. what what it means that you're looking at is this space where people are able to alternate between identifying themselves and as it were moving back into um the the territory where they're drawing on things which are which ex which are pre-existing which we already agree on yeah yeah and i think one of the things we talked about um before i came on the show was the 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 nashville musicians from the from the country bands in the 70s and even really to an extent up to this day who are kind of fantastically good musicians but they're paid to be anonymous you know they're paid not to over express or over emote or play a signature sound that's like handwriting they're you know and it goes back as well to the monkeys bands the monkeys had the most incredible musicians before the monkeys started to play their own instruments I think they're wonderful records, but you know, you you couldn't. I they weren't the, the musicians. They weren't there t to be identified. They were just there to form a generic backdrop. And I actually prefer the way they form a generic backdrop myself, to you know how other people at the same you know who are coming through at the same time, like for instance, Jimi Hendrix, made a very clear signature sound for themselves. Um, and I, I think that like. The, the the really nice thing about having a lot of technique is you can choose between those two options, you know. Whereas I think that if you, again, maybe I'm just making a straw man, but if you don't, if you if you refuse technique in a in a kind of a punk way, in a stereotypical punk way, you never get to the choice of having that. You know, you never get to make that choice. You're always stuck. Just like okay, so then it was three chords. Now in indie music, it's four chords. It's the doo wop chords, you know. And how many? You know, it just isn't really very interesting anymore, I don't think. I think it's really run its course. One, one of the things that I, I, when I was sort of trying to transfer the, to see how these different um, areas of culture speak to each other, it occurred to me that one of the things to do with being exact about recipes is actually repeatability. 
and that if if by chance when you're cooking you hit on something which is amazing which you want to do again you have to write it down straight away i've discovered <laughs> and the only way if everything has been up for grabs in your cooking style which it generally the, is then you're much less likely to hit on it <coughs> again whereas if it's actually you're just varying one thing by mistake or by accident if you put cinnamon in instead of whatever and that's the only thing that varied but it should actually have been salt but it's actually better than it would have been if it had been salt then because it's only once everything else is exactly nailed down then you can actually get back there again that's that's almost the scientific method isn't it i mean that's you control all the other variable yes, variables that, and only I'm, I'm afraid that's how i think of everything <laughs> I was going to say, in a, in a funny way, we're conflating science and technique, um, which I don't think they necessarily are. I think science is method. Um, and in a way, what you're talking about with the cookery is, is method. Uh, I mean, not the entire of science is method, but the scientific method is... Is, is about isolating yes. the, the thing which is changing. Yeah, the thing that you're taught in year whatever it is, science, where they're like... That was the only one, one I was listening. Like, yeah, uh, <laughs> this is why scientists are no fun at all. When you say, I'm going to do science with this tequila, they say, that's not science. It's <laughs> as if they have a definition of what a word means. It's I know. And, and they're like, no, you, no, you're getting drunk. You're not doing science. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing the wrong science. Though. But one, another thing that kind of links the three together is that the idea of, but I could do that at home. So when you were talking about, is he called Greg Wallace? Yeah, the bald yeah. guy off MasterChef. Yeah, yes. who has to kind of pretend that he the knows nothing. The one who looks nothing. like Dr. Bunsen, I need you. As if I watched television. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 you know, this person who has to kind of pretend he knows nothing so he can be a kind of audience placeholder who's like, so you you, you put salt in an omelette. This is really fascinating. This is And, and you have the constant thing between... Um, People who have high technique, sort of unrepeatable technique, or, or something that would take you a lot of effort to get to that point, and people where it just seems, you know, that. So if you're watching someone learn to do it right in front of you, if it's you sort of, you have, on the one hand, you feel closer to them because you think, that's, that's what I'm like. I'm not very good at things, and this person isn't very, very good, and so we're the same, and that's okay. But you also get the feeling of I'm paying money to watch somebody learn to play their instrument on stage in front of me. So you're like, I'm not actually getting anything from this myself. Yeah. See, that that is the kind of... Yes, I, I, d I don't think... I mean, I think the thing that was interesting, but it wasn't really about learning instruments. And in a sense, what was what what turned out to be disappointing, I mean, the great disenchantment for me going through this at the particular age I was, that was that the better people got at their orthodox playing the more boring they became and what had been interesting was the sense of risk that they didn't really know what they wanted to do but they were what they did know was they were performers and mm. they had these things in their hands or they had these mics in front of them or they had these people in front of them so they had to do something and some of them found a way through to do something which was really exciting and and a lot of them did it are we talking about the idea of becoming a pop star rather than becoming and not a pop well, becoming star a, a poor, sort of becoming a performer becoming a yeah, star yes rather than becoming a technically brilliant musician and that um 
sorry to raise it, the, 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 that, it um, no, I'm not going to say it, that star quality um, <laughs> that uh, makes some performers, um, there was a thing on Pop Justice a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about pop stars who get it and pop stars who don't. Hmm. And um, I think there is a definite division between people who can be making basically very good songs who do not get it at all and people who, even if they only do it for a while, they have that excitement around them because they actually do get it, whatever it is. Well, what is it? Well, I think that is the technique, because the... the it's a technique, uh, really? Well, I think it is a technique, but... But, yeah, it's, I think what, it's, it's, but, it's, but it's different from the it's different from craft and skill. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's something you can learn. Method. And I think, in a way, we were debating the, method, uh, the difference between method and technique, because you can be... Like the session musicians that Alistair were talking about had very good method of playing mm. and they'd learnt to play these pieces very well, but without themselves, without their own technique. Whereas well, I think no, they have technique, they just thing. don't have their technique is anonymizing, you know, it's so, to yeah. step back. It's I I think I don't know. I'll I think that the there's notes. the and you kind of move on from that into the because um, when previously when we were discussing this I started thinking about um, R and B singers. And the, the really common complaint you always hear about Mariah Carey, which is that she sings, you know, there's too much melisma, there's too much faffing about, there's too much, that she has too much technique. And that this separates her from us. And that kind of, she puts, and the way that Jimi Hendrix kind of has too too obvious, too strong technique, which kind of, makes it a thing which you somehow can't connect to emotionally because it goes beyond and then you have the very different group of people who think that you know all the techniques and all the tricks and all the bits and pieces that Mariah Carey puts in, into her singing are what make her such a good singer well, and there's this very kind of what I think what I'd like to do now is play a song with a, which is a performer who I think in a complicated way combines those two um, aesthetics in a really interesting way, in a way which divides. Uh, it, this is the Sinead O'Connor song. It's track three. It's track three. Okay. <laughs> I, I hope it's track it. three. <laughs> no, nope, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that one wasn't Hazel. <laughs> Nothing can take away this blue 
Devised listeners, lots of people hate it. Lots of people hate it because it was on incessantly, and uh, it was. I grew up in Ireland. It was really on incessantly. (laughs) I think she went to school like near where I grew up, one of her many schools. So there was this this big local girl done good, play it on repeat. (laughs) But I I've I think it's it, it interests me a lot because she's someone who obviously has ferocious technique she has incredible volume control and she has uh, an ear for pitch which are much more exact and uh, mathematical than most singers and uh, what she essentially does does with this technique is represent someone who is uh, insane uh, who is it's I mean, it's a song about it's this is like you're the stalker menacing you is what this song really is this is the menace of the stalker talking to the person who's dumped her uh, to say you know you will wake up one day and it may be 60 years hence and you will see my face just before <laughs> it ends and that's that is the mood of the song for me and she does this by saying I am like a bottomless pit of anger and look how much I hold it back. Look at my strength at holding it back. I can totally control this. And the song is kind of nuts, the the words of the song. And this is the thing that that she has, you know, divined in it is that it is a song which is simultaneously just a, a song about lots of a not unusual topic in romantic pop but that she's actually by um, by heightening her control has turned it into this song of saying like my control, my technique is the only thing saving you at this moment because I choose not to crush you <laughs> or because I'm like three blocks away and you can get away this technique <laughs> Or because I'm a cat and you're and you my mouse, and eventually <laughs> yes. I'll let go of your tail and I'll reel my other paw in on your back. So the thing you're saying is that technique has to do with the ability to control and the ability to measure. Um, so the difference between hitting on something brilliant in a sort of punk method and kind of doing it by accident and it being basically unreproducible it is the, well, the level of control. Also, there are two different kinds of insanity. Because there's the kind of the insanity that has the brilliant idea all over the place and kind of splurges on thought and Mm. and learns something amazing and wonderful in front of you over and over again, Mm. which is what you wanted from punk. And the kind of insanity that is, I have absolute and total control over my ability to do things and this absolute and total control I am going to use. Mm. 
and I'm going to crank everything. And the kind of the obsessive form of insanity, obsessive and neurotic and very kind of tightly wound. I, I mean, I think that that she is a very, or that song represents a very cold and calculating version of the thing which, with someone like Mariah, is very kind of it's kind of happy and silly, really. Mm. That that she has fantastic t technical control but she uses it in a kind of athlete's way which is she just likes to express her physical joy in her also, own and 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 ditziness really in her own ability to do things and you know if you enjoy it too then that's fantastic and if you don't she's not really bothered either way when mariah sings something an octave higher just because she can't when, when she's like i'm about to sing this chorus I'm going to sing it an octave higher. <laughs> it just sounds like kind of someone has popped a champagne bottle and the yeah. bubble has just jumped. It, there's always this feeling of, even when she's doing it in a really sad song, there's always this feeling of just bubbling of efflorescence. Of effervescence? Effervescence. Yes. Of kind of jumping. That, that, yeah, whereas with this, because it's all, you know, the way that every note falls where it has to fall i mean the way she she jumps on no nothing compares which i'm not going to try and sing because yeah um <laughs> yeah don't yes i don't imitate that, you know that we'll she hits you know that it's it's so it it's rhythmically very strict it it hits the exact note or almost the exact note it has a kind of can extreme. i just say something here yeah. this is my um my first girlfriend ever. This she tried to make this our song, and I think that <laughs> I think that John Tarot should have jumped up and given her three out of ten. <laughs> I'm a little terrified after this discussion. <laughs> Does she know where you live? Um, <laughs> I, I ain't it's reading it out on air. Let's put it that yeah. way. <laughs> it's still your song. <laughs> um, yes, it looks like um, we uh, need to wind up. Although there's no one here. Ah, yes, there are. Um, uh, so till uh, 7 o'clock next week this has been uh, Freaky Trigger and the Lords of Pop we've really enjoyed it we hope you've enjoyed it too and um, <laughs> let's do a nifty handover somehow <laughs>